Then Paul, after the governor had nodded to him to speak, answered, Inasmuch as I know that you have been for many years a judge of this nation, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself, because you may ascertain that it is no more than twelve days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship, and they neither found me in the temple disputing with anyone nor inciting the crowd, either in the synagogues or in the city, nor can they prove the things of which they now accuse me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. This being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. Now after many years I came to bring alms and offerings to my nation in the midst of which some Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple, neither with a mob nor with a tumult. They ought to have been here before you to object if they had anything against me, or else let those who are here themselves say if they found any wrongdoing in me while I stood before the council, unless it is for this one statement which I cried out, standing among them, concerning the resurrection of the dead, I am being judged by you this day. Amen. Father God, we thank you for your word. We pray that as we look into it, that our hearts would reverence it, that our hearts would be sanctified by it, that uh, you would do uh, your work of causing your kingdom to come and your will to be done more and more on this earth as it is in heaven. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. There was an old joke up in Canada that unfortunately has become transmogrified into an urban legend which people purport to be true. It's, um, it's a great joke, at least if you're a Canadian, because uh, their navy's kind of um, an embarrassment to them, but it's been pawned off as true so many times that our U.S. Navy felt like they had to put a disclaimer on their official website Here's how our Navy has uh, posted this. Believe it or not, and any time you read those words, you probably ought to check it out on Snopes, but believe it or not, this is the transcript of an actual radio conversation between a U.S. naval ship and Canadian authorities off the coast of Newfoundland in October 1995. The radio conversation was released by the Chief of Naval Operations on October 10, 1995, and of course, This is impossible because the ship that they reference was um, decommissioned and scrapped in 1993. But anyway, uh, here's the supposed transcript. U.S. ship, please divert your course 0.5 degrees to the south to avoid a collision. Canadian reply, recommend you divert your course 15 degrees to the south to avoid a collision. U.S. ship, this is the captain of a U.S. Navy ship. I say again, divert your course. Canadian reply, no, I say again, you divert your course. U.S. ship, this is the aircraft carrier USS Coral Sea. We are a large warship of the U.S. Navy. Divert your course now. Canadian reply, this is a lighthouse. Your call. (laughs) (laughs) The Canadian Navy loves that joke because uh, they're a little bit defensive about their lack of a Navy, or they have one, but it's not that, that big. But, you know, it is a story that has a little bit of the ring of truth to it because of how universal pride and defensiveness uh, really is. 
Some people will not back down even though they know that they are wrong. They get angry, they get defensive. But on the other side are people who will not defend themselves. Uh, They act like doormats. They let themselves get pushed around. And neither side shows the biblical balance. Defending yourself is a biblical responsibility. Being defensive is a sin. There's a world of difference between those two. Defending yourself is a biblical responsibility. Being defensive is a sin. The first flows out of stewardship. We belong to the Lord. We're required to defend God's property. The second uh, flows from pride and it's resisted by God. It's not required. On the case of the first side, there is no place in the Bible for passivism. No place for passive. We are commanded to defend ourselves. In fact, we're even commanded to defend our reputation. There are a number of scriptures along that line. Proverbs 22.1 says, A good name is to be more desired than riches and uh, gold. And so there is no place for passivism, but neither is there any place for defending your pride. Uh, We've got to learn how to defend the things that God calls us to defend and to refuse to defend the things that God calls us to crucify. And so today's sermon is defending oneself without getting defensive. How do we maintain that kind of a balance? What we're going to do is go through the passage three times, uh, Lord willing. I don't usually do this, but first time we go through it, I'm going to show the attitudes that Paul had, and then the second time we're going to look at the methods, and then we're going to be looking at the actual defense that Paul gave. We're not going to spend as much time on points Uh, 2 and 3, but as we go through this passage three times, I think you're going to notice a remarkable self-control on the part of Paul and a remarkable absence of defensiveness despite the fact that he's been falsely accused by Tertullus in, in a court of law. First of all, Paul's attitude. Look at verse 10. Then Paul, after the governor had nodded to him to speak, answered, Inasmuch as I know that you have been for many years a judge of this nation, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself. We're just looking at the attitudes this time. And here, I looked up the word cheerful because I was a little bit skeptical of the translation. But in the dictionary, that's exactly what it says. It just says cheerful. And it adds a couple of things. It says cheerful, having good spirits, full of life, filled with cheer. And the first thing I want to ask is, is it even possible to be cheerful when everybody's gunning for you? And I would say, yes, absolutely it is. Uh, Many of you uh, who are older will remember uh, that uh, even Ronald Reagan's bitterest opponents um, really could not help but like him because of the cheerful way in which he responded. I remember to this day the kind of smile that was on his face when he would uh, answer sometimes in very clever ways, the slanders that were being brought against him. And I remember back then thinking, how can this guy be so cheerful? Because I'm seething inside. I'm offended by the way that the media is treating him. And here he is, so cheerful uh, over the way in which he responded. And I was thinking, you know, this guy is a lot more mature in this area than I am at that particular time. Let me just give you one example. Uh, When he was running for his second term, The media was all over him for being unqualified, unfit, because he was too old. He was 73 years old, and they were saying, yeah, what if he gets senile? What if he has a heart attack? They were going on and on about the the various age uh, issues there. 
And after his debate with Mondale, which didn't really go that well, oh, the senility thing came up big time. And he wasn't back then. Uh, he wasn't at all. But afterwards, one reporter asked him about this senility question uh, rather bluntly. And uh, he looked earnestly at her and said with a hint of a smile, I want you to know that also I will not make age an issue of this campaign. I am not going to exploit exploit for political purposes my opponent's youth and inexperience. <laughs> and uh, the audience erupted in, in laughter. And even Mondale, you could see him on the TV, he was chuckling over this as well. But this was the way Reagan was. He was able to disarm people uh, with uh, his good humor. And some of his greatest and most memorable lines, uh, some of which are quotable quotes to this day, came in spontaneous response uh, to personal attacks. And so it's possible to have a cheerful spirit even when you're being personally attacked without in any way giving up the responsibility to defend yourself. I think Reagan did a tremendous job of showing how his opponents, their attacks, really were petty, uh, petty attacks. And in the process of answering, he was instructing people, giving them... Uh, a little bit of a philosophy of his worldview, and he made them laugh. Uh, here are some of my favorite one-liners that Reagan gave. Government's view of the economy could be summed up in a few short phrases. If it moves, tax it. If it keeps moving, regulate it. If it stops moving, subsidize it. <laughs> here was another one. Uh, Communism works only in heaven where they don't need it and in hell where they've already got it. <laughs> That was back in June of 83. He said when, when he was being criticized for being pro-life, he said, you know, I've noticed all those in favor of abortion are already born. <laughs> and when he was criticized for lack of government compassion or lack of his, you know, desiring socialism, he said, there's a clear cause and effect here that is as neat and predictable as a law of physics as government expands, liberty contracts. Now, he was just so great with his one-liners. One time he said, I've wondered at times about what the Ten Commandments would have looked like if Moses had run them through the U.S. Congress. <laughs> now, I'm not saying that Reagan didn't blow it on occasion. He did, and Paul blew it too on occasion. But all I'm saying is it is possible to be cheerful even in the midst of personal attacks that come against you. And you, the question is, how do we achieve that? Because it doesn't come naturally. What comes naturally is for us to get angry, to get really upset when people are doing things like that. Well, let me give you some hinters. First of all, if we are absolutely convinced of the sovereignty of God, we have every reason to be cheerful because we know God's in control of them and He's in control of our situation. He's working it together for our good. In a uh, leadership book by James Strzok, uh, he quoted uh, Reagan as saying, quote, that God has a plan for everyone and that seemingly random twists of fate are all part of his plan. In the end, everything worked out for the best, unquote. God's sovereignty, it really is a precious doctrine that we have to lay hold of. Now, there's other factors as well. If you're convinced of post-millennialism, you have every reason to be cheerful because you know even if truth fails right now, eventually truth is going to triumph. If you believe in total depravity, you have every reason to be cheerful because you're not going to, you know, when you've got the, the kind of smear campaign that these Sadducees were bringing against Paul here, you're going to say, well, that's what you expect from pagans, right? 
that you're not going to be taken by surprise. If you believe in the grace of God, you've got every reason to be cheerful because where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. God's grace can handle the people out there. It can handle the problems within. And so it's an issue of perspective, but it's more than perspective. If you are full of the Holy Spirit, you are experiencing the reality of what you believe. And therefore, you have every reason uh, to be cheerful. But being cheerful is a powerful ally. One of my favorite books on leadership, the one I just referenced, uh, Reagan on Leadership uh, by James Strzok, he said that Reagan remained invincibly genial. Invincibly genial. Now, the second thing I see in Paul was the ability to not be phased by criticism. This is related to point, one, point A, but it's slightly different. This is the ability to not give up when you are being slandered. Some people, when they receive personal attacks, they just back right out. They say, this is not worth it. They're not going to fight. Nobody likes to be attacked. But the issue here is not whether you like it or not. The issue is, are you going to give up uh, when you are being attacked? Pete Wilson said that Reagan was able to take a punch. The only times that he really got mad when he got furious is when his wife was attacked or when his kids were attacked. But he didn't seem to be phased by personal criticism himself. And I think this highlights another difference between defending yourself, which can be all about uh, uh, truth and, and uh, justice, and being defensive, which is all about defending your pride, protecting your own pride. Now, of course, this did not mean that Paul was a pansy or a doormat. He was quite forceful in his defense. Look at verses 11 through 13. Because you may ascertain that it is no more than twelve days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship. And they neither found me in the temple disputing with anyone, nor inciting the crowd, either in the synagogues or in the city, nor can they prove the things of which they now accuse me. Now, on occasion, being forceful can irritate people. I'm sure that the Sadducees were pretty irritated with some of the things that Paul said here, but sometimes it's absolutely essential that you do so. Uh, in an airport, there was a, uh, a lady who was doing her best, uh, she was an agent, doing her best to rebook passengers from a canceled flight. And there was a long line of passengers that were waiting. Well, one uh, gentleman was, well, he didn't act very gentlemanly, one man, uh, very irritated, and he cut in line up into the front, and there were a bunch of people shouting at him, hey, you can't be cutting in line, and they were very frustrated with him. And he said to the lady, I have to be on this flight, and it has to be first class. To which she responded, I'm sorry, sir, I'll be happy to help you, but I have to take care of these folks first. The passenger said, do you have any idea who I am? And without hesitating, the agent smiled, picked up her public address microphone and said, may I have your attention, please? We have a passenger here at the gate who does not know who he is. If anyone can help him find his identity, please come to the gate. <laughs> Ah, and the people who were watching all applauded because they knew what a jerk this guy was being. <laughs> now, she knew she had to be forceful in this situation. She had more than just this guy mad. She'd have a whole bunch of other people mad at her as well. But Paul was not willing to be pushed around. He was polite, but he was forceful. Can you see that? He wasn't rude. He was polite, but he was forceful. Another thing that helped him not to be defensive... I uh, can be seen in verse 14. 
he says here, but this I confess to you that according to the way which they call a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. Now that takes boldness to say to a pagan, I believe everything that's in the Bible. Okay, believe it all. Too many times Christians get shamed out of professing their faith because of ridicule in the public arena. You know, people come to them and say, oh, you're one of those Bible-believing people. I had this happen to me recently. So you, you believe in stoning babies and you believe in nuking gays. And, and, you know, it's a total misrepresentation of the Christian position, but it's successful because it makes Christians back way off and they say, oh, no, no, I don't, I don't believe in any of that. They get immediately into a defensive uh, position and it's not because they are defending themselves or defending the truth or defending God's glory. No, they're defending their pride. They don't want to look stupid in the eyes of the world. That's all that's going on there. And uh, if there is any portion of the Word of God that you are embarrassed by, you're going to be at a tremendous disadvantage because they're going to find it and they're going to make you defensive. You cannot, you cannot uh, uh, properly defend the Scripture unless you're Uh, unless you are proud of every portion of the Scripture. And I love the way Doug Wilson uh, uh, answered uh, Dan Barker in his debate. Now, Dan Barker is an atheist, and he was doing his utmost to bring all kinds of things that would make... You could just tell, oh, this is an embarrassing Scripture. This is another embarrassing Scripture. He was trying to make him defensive. And let me quote from him. I got this off an MP3 uh, recording of the debate. Uh, The atheist said... This supposedly all-knowing, all-caring God doesn't exist. If he doesn't care about human suffering, he's not a good God. The God of the Bible appears to be quite the cruel character. The God of the Bible committed mass genocide. Kill all the children and you'll be very happy. This is what the God of the Bible says. You'll be very happy if you take the little babies and dash them against a stone. Psalm 137 says that. One of the most cruel, abhorrent examples of immorality that I can even imagine. I wouldn't want a creature like that living in the same neighborhood with me. If he does exist, he is cruel. But since you require, by definition, that the God of Scripture is a good God, then that God cannot, by definition, exist. So that was the atheist's attack. Sounds pretty embarrassing to a lot of of Christians. Would you have been defensive if somebody had said that to you? You know, trying to say, oh, no, you know, and trying to interpret these scriptures and saying, no, you're misrepresenting that and just not being on the offense. You're totally on the the defense. He threw in a couple of other objections to slavery and marrying underage girls and other things that were total misrepresentations. But anyway, Doug Wilson, he didn't he didn't bite on those things. Here's what he said. This is during the cross-examination. I'd like to ask you first, if you have an objection to what God said in the Psalms to take the babies and dash them against the rock, Dan Barker said, yes, I do. It is wrong. It was wrong on objective moral principles. By the way, later he shows he didn't have any basis for any moral objections against the Bible or anything. But anyway, I'll just give this section of the the debate. Uh, Wilson then asked, so it is wrong to take a baby's life for any reason? And as Dan Barker kind of hesitated, the audience caught it, and they just erupted into applause because they knew he had scored a point because Barker is a pro-abortion guy, and abortion is ripping little babies apart in the womb, you know, limb from limb. And, and anyway, after a little bit of hesitation, he says, 
it is wrong to take a baby in your hands and pick it up and, and throw it against a rock. And Wilson says, well, what if President Clinton approved it? And after stuttering a bit, Barker says, well, then that would be wrong, of course, yes. And Wilson asked, if you take the same baby and put it in the womb, is there an objective moral objection to taking the life of an infant? And Barker gets really irritated and asks, are we getting into abortion tonight? And Wilson said, you are objecting to God being pro-choice. You introduced the subject. You're saying that God can't take an innocent life, but we can. And when Barker said, so you're saying that that was good? Wilson then gave a great testimony to the fact he believed everything in the Bible and saying you don't have a moral uh, basis for even objecting to this or anything else in the Bible, even if you've misrepresented it. You don't have a moral basis for doing that because you've rejected the only source of morality in God. God is by definition a good God. He's the definition of goodness so that all that God commands is good. And so we cannot be embarrassed by anything that's in the Bible or we've lost the debate. Now, if Wilson had become defensive out of embarrassment, he would have lost the debate. As it was, I think he did a great job. And he didn't get into the interpretation, the real interpretation of Psalm 137. Uh, he really didn't need to, to do that. Now, in verse 15, Paul goes on to say that he's a man of hope, a man of hope and vision. I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. He knows that all of history is heading toward a goal. It's not circular, just spinning around meaninglessly. All of history is heading toward a goal, and that goal was driving all of the things that he was doing right now. And by the way, it was a post-millennial hope, because he saw a resurrection, not two or three resurrections in the future. He saw a resurrection, and that one resurrection includes both the just and the unjust. And this is why we call it post-millennialism. It's because Christ comes back after the millennium or post the millennium. And uh, uh, that is really, I think, a critical doctrine. When I first understood post-millennial uh, eschatology, it revolutionized my thinking. It, it, it completely transformed the way I think. This, is the, this was the eschatology of Charles Spurgeon and William Carey and David Livingston and so many other uh, people. Now, along with presuppositional apologetics, okay, there's a triad, there's a mighty triad uh, in Reformed faith, presuppositional apologetics, which is a biblical one. You never start on neutrality. You start committed to the God of the Scriptures. Biblical law, which gives the biblical blueprints. You've got to have a substitute for humanism. If you're against humanism, you can't just say this is bad. You've got to replace it with something, right? And you've got to replace it with something that God has given, not something you come up with. Otherwise, it's another form of humanism. And so you've got presuppositionalism. You've got biblical law, which we're not ashamed of. We love it. It's a replacement. It's a brilliant replacement. And then you've got postmillennialism, which says God wins. This is going to work. And it gives you motivation. It may, really makes you move ahead. Now, it's only hinted at here, but I think this is one of the things that drove Paul, kept him from being defensive. When I was convinced of those three, it, 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 it helped me to transfer from a defensive position into an offensive uh, position that the, that the apostles had. Okay, sixth attitude of Paul that made a difference was a clear conscience. Verse 16. 
This being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. A guilty conscience makes people reactive rather than proactive. It really robs you of faith uh, because uh, a a guilty uh, conscience uh, uh, makes you constantly be looking inwardly instead of looking uh, to the Lord. Uh, It makes you negative. It makes you critical of others because of that negativity. And you're not internally transformed, so you become cynical of others. Guilty conscience robs you of God's power, His peace, His joy, His victory. So it really is another essential ingredient. And I want you to notice that Paul does not say he was perfect. He said he always strove, which means he's having to fight on a regular basis. He always strove to have a conscience without offense. Now, that means that the moment he sins, he confesses it. He puts it under the blood of Christ. The moment other people point out a sin in him, he confesses it. He deals uh, with that sin so that his conscience is not uh, guilty. He was not about defending pride or image. He was about walking in the light and daily having a conscience cleansed by the blood of Christ. Now, let me illustrate what kind of a difference this makes. Uh, Rodney uh, Buchanan uh, tells about uh, a family gathering where a gal was had said something that was not right, and the whole family came all over her. Was not only accusing her of the things she was doing there, but bringing up all of the sins of her past. You know how it goes. You always do such and such. You remember back then, and it was uh, something that it could have made her very easily defensive. But instead of going on the attack and accusing them, instead of Uh, denying that she was a sinner, instead of becoming defensive, here's what she said. She said, you know, I'm glad you brought that up. I've been feeling bad about some of those things for a long time. I need to ask you to forgive me. (laughs) They weren't expecting that. They just kind of took the wind out of their sails. And before long, they were talking, they were reconciled, and they were moving forward. It was because she was secure in the grace of Jesus Christ that she was not defensive. She was saying, yeah, I'm a whole lot worse than you really realize that I am. And I want not only God's forgiveness, I want your forgiveness. I want to have a conscience that's free of offense. If you are justifying sin in your life, you're not going to be able to have the kind of offense that uh, the Apostle Paul here had. You're going to be robbed of this biblical balance. Now, Paul also had a generous heart. Take a look at verse 17. Now, after many years, I came to bring alms and offerings to my nation. I want you to think about that for a second because all that this nation has ever done to Paul is abuse him. It'd be very easy to become cynical when that happens. When you're involved in mercy ministries like Paul was involved in here and you get burned time after time, it's very easy to become cynical and you say, well, fooey on this. You know, everybody's... Uh, just out for uh, themselves. Everybody's uh, just ripping off uh, the church. But he did not become cynical like that. He had a generous heart that continued to flow uh, by God's Spirit. And his generosity was such a contrast with the attitudes of these Sadducees that I think it really impressed Felix. Okay, Don't get cynical. It'll make you just like your opponents. Continue to be generous and your accusers will have less and less to say against you. Next, Paul was factual. He didn't exaggerate, but he realized that the truth did indeed uh, need to be told. He needed to tell the truth. So take a look at verses 17 through 18. 
Now, after many years, I came to bring alms and offerings to my nation, in the midst of which some Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple, neither with a mob nor with a tumult. Uh, Felix would not have gotten that information from the Jerusalem Post. Okay? Uh, And we need to realize that public officials today are not going to get their information... Um, uh, adequate information from the news outlets that they have. We need to be factual. We need to be bringing the truth to them. And thankfully, we have alternative forms of of a news media out there on the Internet and, and elsewhere. And so, if you're careful and you sort through the evidence and you're looking at it from many different perspectives, you're going to be able to have facts uh, to give uh, to the people who are out there. Um, anyway... Don't allow the fact that you're being attacked make you stop giving the truth or exaggerate or to um, uh, in any way uh, give up on expressing the facts. People may not believe what you're bringing to them. That really doesn't matter. The reason you have to keep bringing the truth is we do not win by manipulation. We win by bringing the truth of Jesus Christ and He's the one that can prosper that truth how and where He wills. Next, Paul didn't just defend himself, he went on the offense. And he made clear that these people were clogging up the courts with a frivolous lawsuit, not following protocol, they're guilty of perjury. Look at verses 19 through 20. They ought to have been here before you to object if they had anything against me, or else let those who are here themselves say if they found any wrongdoing in me while I stood before the council." What Paul is doing is very interesting. Paul is inviting Ananias or any of these elders to testify against him. And if they do, they're going to be at a disadvantage because then they can be cross-examined and they will be subject to perjuries if they lie. Ananias very significantly refuses to testify for himself. He lets Tertullus, you know, handle the dirty work for him. Uh, And that's very telling. It makes the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, look like they have a very weak case uh, indeed when they're not willing to testify. But this comes because Paul's willing uh, to go on the offense. The last attitude of Paul was clarity of thinking. In verse 21, he brings things back uh, to where the real disagreements were that the Sadducees were liberals who didn't believe in the resurrection. That's why they're so mad at him. They're liberals. Okay, they're the proverbial king who has no clothes. He says, unless it is for this one statement which I cried out standing among them concerning the resurrection of the dead, I am being judged by you this day. Okay, this is the only thing that they could prove. This is the fundamental disagreement that they have and he's quite happy to testify to that disagreement. They are liberals who don't believe the Bible. Okay, and it showed what a sham their charge of blasphemy really was. Paul's clear thinking. He's not being buffaloed into endlessly arguing about peripheral issues. He keeps bringing things back to the heart of the matter. And so those were the crucial attitudes that enabled Paul to defend himself without being defensive. Uh, I think Roman numeral number one is at the heart of the sermon. Uh, We really could quit here uh, uh, because you can have the right methods, you can have the right answers, but if you don't have the right attitudes you're likely still going to lose the battle that is out there. If your adversaries can get you mad, if they can get you saying things that you later on regret saying, if they can divert you into defending your pride instead of defending 
uh, the truth, you've lost the battle. What we really need to be defending, since we everything we are and have belongs to God, we need to be defending God's honor, His truth, His property, and His goals. And when we do that, we're in a position where we can defend ourselves without being uh, defensive. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on Paul's methods and Paul's answers, even though I think they're fascinating in their own right. But l- let me quickly go through them for you. In verse 10, this is dealing with methods. Paul is sensitive to court protocol. He doesn't act like a jerk. He doesn't get outraged at Tertullus, start stamping his feet. You know, he doesn't, uh, you know, object. He waits. Verse 10. Then Paul, after the governor had nodded to him to speak, answered, Inasmuch as I know that you have been for many years a judge of this nation, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself. So he lets the judge be the judge. Okay, he's polite. He's adversarial with his opponents. He's not adversarial with the judge. And interestingly, he acknowledges the judge's jurisdiction over the kind of attacks that Ananias is bringing against him, but he pleads not guilty. To the charge of blasphemy, later on he's going to say, you guys really have no jurisdiction in this area. But he's careful to follow proper protocol throughout. Then in verses 11 through 21, he categorically denies each charge. Now, it's interesting that even though they have no jurisdiction over the real issue, which is the doctrinal dispute on the resurrection, they don't have jurisdiction on that. Paul's willing to acknowledge jurisdiction on the charges that that Tertullus is, uh, is accusing him of. He does not claim to be a sovereign individual. I don't think Felix would take to that too well. Okay? Uh, uh, he operates both within the de jure and within the de facto. De jure is what ought to be. De facto is what is. And he doesn't just be so idealistic that he says, yeah, I'm not going to even answer that question. I'm not going to deal with your rules. I'm only going to deal with the rules that God has set up. He doesn't do that. And if we focus so much in our perfectionism on our rights that we totally ignore the court system itself, we're going to be at a disadvantage. He works within the system even though there are problems in the system. And I think we can learn from that. He then insists that they prove their charges with real witnesses and real evidence. Tertullus was not even present at the riot. He can't bring any evidence. Ananias and the elders weren't present at that riot. So they can't bring any evidence. So he's basically saying, where are the witnesses? That's what I'd like to know. Where are the witnesses? If you got a case at all? And they hadn't brought any with them. I think they were hoping that Felix would transfer jurisdiction to Jerusalem, but Paul catches them in a dilemma, and I love this. I love this. Here's the dilemma. If Tertullus's charges are true, then Felix cannot transfer jurisdiction back to the Jews because... Tertullus did not just accuse Paul of defiling the temple. That could have given jurisdiction to the Jews. He probably felt that's an extremely weak argument. We need to buttress this argument by also claiming that Paul has been a revolutionary trying to overthrow Rome. Well, now if he's if that's a charge, he can't give jurisdiction back to the Jews. But the other problem is that if these charges are not true then the Sanhedrin is going to be in trouble for bringing frivolous or false charges. And Paul presses his point home. Look at verse 13. Nor can they prove the things of which they now accuse me. Look down at verses 19 and 20. They ought to have been here before you to object if they had anything against me. 
Or else, let those who are here themselves say, if they found any wrongdoing in me while I stood before the council. He's saying these guys didn't witness the riot, but neither did they witness anything at that first court trial of which they can accuse me, unless it's this one that I'm quite happy to admit to, that they don't believe the Bible, and I do believe the Bible. Okay? Verse 21, Unless it is for this one statement which I cried out, standing among them, concerning the resurrection of the dead, I am being judged by you this day. See, the onus is not on Paul to prove his innocence. It's not on him. They are the ones who brought the charges. They are the ones who need to be able to demonstrate that he is guilty. And too many people try to defend their own innocence. And that's an endless state of affairs. For example, when social services shows up at your door because they've had an anonymous tip that you've been abusing a child, some ridiculous charge like that, and they want you to prove that you are innocent, they're going beyond the law. Okay? According to American law, you are innocent until you are proven guilty. They, you need to ask them, okay, where is the warrant? Show me the warrant. Because that means that they've gone before a judge, they've prevent, presented sufficient evidence that the judge thinks that there is probable cause But the point is, you are innocent until proven guilty. Get a lawyer. You know, don't give in on that. The Bible assumes your innocence until you're proven guilty. It's very difficult to prove your innocence. That's not the purpose of the court. The purpose is to prove, uh, at least of the prosecution, to prove someone's guilt. Okay, then as I mentioned earlier, we're dealing with methods here. In verse 21, he ends up, by pointing out that the real issue is theological, that neither court really has jurisdiction over this area. It should be thrown out of court. When you are under attack, it's so easy to be diverted from what the real issues are and to start arguing about tangential things which just mires you down. Cults are notorious for this. Actually, it's not just cults. Husbands and wives are notorious for this. You know, you get into an argument over some issue... And then the other person brings it, yeah, and what, what did you do over here? And before you know it, you're arguing about all kinds of things that are utterly irrelevant to the initial discussion. You never get back to that point. See, this is just a, a tactic of our flesh. There are smoke screens to divert you from what the real issue is so that you're endlessly bogged down and you're on the defensive. Paul doesn't allow them uh, to do that to him. Uh, It's a great debater's trick, but it's really unfair. People will throw out bait to get you arguing about something that's very interesting, but it's much harder to defend. And so Paul's methods were not defensive, but I think we can learn a lot from his methods. And then finally, Paul's answers were not defensive. So, his attitudes were not defensive, his methods were not defensive, and his answers were not defensive. Back at verse 11 again. Uh, He's first of all, in verse 5, given the charge of sedition and creating an uprising. Here's Paul's answer, threefold answer. Because you may ascertain that it is no more than 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship. From the evidence that Lysias had introduced into the court via his letter, uh, it's clear that Paul came to Jerusalem when all of the other pilgrims came to Jerusalem. Count 12 days back, you're at Pentecost. And so what in the world is Paul doing in the temple? He's doing what all of the other pilgrims are doing in the temple. He's just gone there to celebrate 
uh, Pentecost, and he invites Felix to ask the Sanhedrin when they saw him at Jerusalem. Again, he's trying to take, get them to take the stand. He'd love for them to take the stand because then there could be some cross-examination going on. Second answer is verse 12. They neither found me in the temple disputing with anyone nor inciting the crowd, either in the synagogues or in the city. Now, Paul had deliberately tried to avoid public appearances. The only reason he was in the temple is that in Acts 21, the elders of the church have said, you know, it's a good idea if you go ahead and do this. He was getting purified uh, in, in the uh, temple. And if the trial goes on, Paul might be able to subpoena some witnesses uh, to prove uh, that he created no disturbance, that it was the Jews who did. Third part of his answer, verse 13, nor can they prove the things of which they now accuse me. Okay, he's saying that their charges are groundless. See, a charge by itself does not prove you're guilty. And yet, how many times do we believe a charge simply because a charge has been given? You know, somebody has been accused. Maybe it's gossip. Maybe it's slander. But, uh, you know, uh, newspaper reports that the government has accused somebody. Well, they're not been proven guilty yet. So why is it that so many people instantly believe? The Scripture says you need to check out all sides of the story. A charge does not prove your guilt. And Paul's attitude here is until he's proven guilty with evidence, he is innocent. So that's the first the answer to the first charge. I think in any court of law it ought to be enough. Then the second charge given in verse 5 was that Paul is the ringleader of a new religion that's a cult and thus not licensed by Rome. Now, Paul bypasses the whole issue of licensing. It was probably a, a wise idea there. But he first of all admits, yeah, I am what they say I am. I'm a Christian. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers. Yes, I am part of what they call a sect. Uh, but he does not deny the faith, nor does he admit to being a new religion or a cult. He says that Christianity is the way. Now, that expression was used earlier in the book by Paul. And the, the way indicates Paul is a part of an exclusive, the one and only way that's always been the way and still is the way. Uh, he's not admitting to being a spin-off, a break-off, or anything else uh, like that. He's not part of the Nazarenes unless you say that the Nazarenes are part of the historic faith. He next admits to holding the historic faith, I worship the God of my fathers. Now, the implication is it's the Sadducees, not Paul, who have abandoned the faith. It's the liberals who were the cult, not Paul. Now, homosexuals try their utmost to make us look like we're deviating from a standard, but we need to be insisting. No, we're part of the historic faith. We're part of the historic position uh, in America. Point four buttresses this by saying, believing all things which are written in the Law and the Prophets. And I really ought to preach an entire sermon just on that one verse there, but uh, I don't know if I will or not. But he's claiming, hey, I'm a theonomist, is what he's saying. I believe everything in the Law and the Prophets, right? Claiming to be a theonomist. He's also claiming that Christianity is not a new religion. It is the religion of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It is the religion of Moses. It is the religion of David. People who call themselves New Testament Christians are admitting that the false charge of the Sadducees is true. That's exactly what they are admitting to. Uh, it's imperative that Christi Christians affirm Christianity is not a new religion. Now, Sadducees and the Pharisees would love to make you out to be a new religion. So would the 
uh, liberals, dispensationalists might believe that, but there is only one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one body, one temple, one vineyard, one olive tree. Okay, Romans 4, verses 1, 12, and 16 say that Abraham is the father of our faith. It's the same faith. Like Paul, we need to be able to testify believing all things which are written in the Law and the Prophets. Can you honestly say that? Nothing I'm embarrassed by. I believe in everything that's in the Law and the Prophets. We really need to be able to say that if we're going to follow Paul. Paul then said that he believed in the resurrection. This too is part of the historic faith. It was the Sadducees who had the new religion. Verse 15, I have hope in God which they themselves also accept. By the way, that's not the Sadducees. They did not believe in a resurrection. He's talking about the fathers um, uh, that they did. That there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. Now, full preterists cannot say that. They are not part of the way. They cannot claim the faith of the fathers. Uh, Orthodox Christianity has always affirmed a future resurrection of all who are in the graves, both the just and of the unjust. Okay? Um, They... The, the, they uh, they do not the, the full preterists do not uh, hold to the the faith of the ancient Jewish fathers and in verse 16 he affirms that his conscience is completely free on this issue of a new religion oh that modern Christians could have a clear conscience on this and say yeah I've never deviated from the old paths I love the old paths that God has given and then very quickly let's look at Paul's defense against the charge of sacrilege. He did not bring a Gentile into the temple. He was bringing alms to the nation. Verse 17 was fulfilling a Nazarite vow. Verse 18 was not doing anything to upset temple protocol. Verse 18, he points out they have not one shred of proof to this courtroom of any charges. And that's verses 19 through 20. And then finally he reiterates, what's the hatred all about? They hate me because I believe in the resurrection. They're liberals who don't believe in a resurrection. They're liberals who don't believe the Bible. Now, I think you can see that the best defense is a good offense. But we will never be able to have a good offense if we do not adopt the attitudes of Paul, the methods of Paul, and the answers of Paul. And I would urge you to not be ashamed of any portion of the message of Scripture, to embrace it with joy, and as we boldly give an answer of the hope that lies within us, as Peter tells us to, May we do so with the boldness of Paul, with his presuppositionalism, with his biblical law, and with his postmillennialism. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. We thank you for the boldness of your saints of the past who have been an example to us of how we ought to, to walk. We thank and bless you, Father, that you are sufficient for all of our needs, that uh, even this whole issue of not being defensive which is so difficult to live out. Easy to believe, difficult to live out because our pride rears its ugly head and makes us angry. I pray that You would so subdue our passions, so give to us the humility of Christ that our goal, our vision, our passion would be to defend Your property, Your goals, Your truth rather than to defend our pride. We love you, we bless you, and we thank you that you are sufficient for this goal. In Jesus' name, amen.